0: Hey, Reset fam, it's Sasha. Before we get to the recap, I want to let you know that Reset officially has its very own newsletter. Our digital engagement producer Claire Hyman has been working hard behind the scenes to craft this awesome newsletter that you can get in your inbox every morning. So catch up on the big stories and join the conversation by going to wbez.org reset and entering your email. All right, on to the show. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's weekly news recap. We made it to the end of another busy week. Before we kick back for the weekend, it's time to catch up on all the news that we might have missed. Kim Fox made a surprising announcement.
1: Cook County State's attorney Kim Fox today said she will not run for re-election.
0: We got a glimpse of what the Brandon Johnson administration will look like.
2: Among the four dozen names, Representative Delia Ramirez, former CPD Chief of Detectives Brandon Deanahan, and former mayoral candidate State Representative Cam Buckner.
0: And a bill in Springfield could change Illinois' history curriculum. A bill at the Illinois State Capitol wants to change to include some Native American history in lessons, there's a lot to get to, as always, and I can't do it alone. Today, we're joined by a stellar panel, including Kimberly Agoin, political commentator for WVON, Alex Nitkin, reporter with the Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association, and Heather Sharon Chicago politics reporter for WTTW. So final results are in for the mayoral runoff election, with 38 percent of registered voters casting a ballot. This was the biggest turnout since 1999. Alex, earlier on, you tweeted and cautioned people not to analyze the results too early. So now that we do have the final results, what are your takeaways?
1: Well, it was. Um, I'm glad that now that the final results are in, we can we can all prognosticate and say what Everyone we really think. To it you. was, yeah, I'm so glad. Um, <laughs> it is, um, you know. W- uh, what it looked like from the beginning, it sort of uh filled out into more of a slightly you know healthier Johnson lead about a four to five point victory a um you know narrow but decisive victory. I think that uh we got a more um vivid uh vivid picture of where people were voting. Mm-hmm. We saw how those votes broke down. Um, say, on the North Lakefront, where we had this really dramatic kind of dividing line on Irving Park Road, which was really interesting, where you had folks on the far north side more voting for Brandon Johnson, and uh, south of that, um, the, you know, wealthier Lincoln Park votes voting for Vallis. Looking at, you mentioned the turnout. It was about a uh, 35, 36 percent turnout l- higher yes. than previous elections. Still, the Biggest you know, in, like,
0: 24 years.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um for a city election, you have to remember that it's it's difficult. It's hard to people to get turnout to turn out in the middle of the winter for things they don't really care about as much as, say, presidential elections. Although, of course, we would argue they should. Um, right. But it's also very far down from the 1983 election, for example, was what was it, Heather? Something like 80 like percent. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that. I think that we should be looking into what are the reasons why it has been going up. There could be any number. Mm -hmm. The um, just general interest in politics and elections seems like it's been going up nationally, which is a good thing. A lot of it you could also have to say you could also say has to do with the proliferation of mail-in voting. And there are just more different ways to vote than there were before. But also that there are a lot of there are going to be a lot of important conversations now about how to get that up even further and how to get it more like it Mm -hmm. was. People are now talking about. Instant runoffs where you will rank choice voting, in other words. You won't have yeah. to keep coming back. Um, one other potential way to do it would be just to, you know, merge the city elections with national elections. You would just be moving them up a couple of months. It's something that has not been as prominent. but That's Certainly has been floated, you know. If people are showing up anyway, you know, in the 2020 election, there was something like a 70 percent turnout. So, yeah, those kinds of conversations are going to be. Well,
0: happening. I mean, Kimberly, do you think that there's anything that we could learn from this turnout to maybe try to replicate in future elections?
2: Well, I don't know how you replicate the number of aldermen that were not coming back and the number um, a mayor that had very low approval ratings and. Ultimately, I feel like people uh, in general smell blood in the water. Mm. And that just added to the allure of wanting to have your voice heard because, you know, change is coming. Let's figure out what we can do with this. Mm, interesting. Not to the degree of what happened in 1983, because that to me was a true movement. I know we heard that there this was a movement and we heard a lot of that during this. But during 1983, no one had to say it was a movement. And that's how you know it's a movement. Mm. The African-American community in particular, if the if it was an 80 percent voting rate, it was probably like 85 in the black community. I mean, it was super high because everyone felt like they had something at stake. So in this case, I think with the number of aldermen who had already quit, you had two aldermen running for mayor. um, Well, not in the runoff, of course, by the time you get to that point. But you're able to see that there is going to be major change in city council that you have not seen in or in, in in generations. Yeah. So I think that that had a lot to do with it. And you did have major organizing the the one of the main, of course, candidates for mayor, Brandon Johnson, had the support of major organizations and knew how to organize and knew that you want to make the umbrella larger to bring more people in. Yeah. And anytime time you do that, you're going to have more participation
0: well, Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson has named his transition team, and, and one of the criticisms of him as a candidate, people talked about his relative lack of experience at this scale. Uh, but he did have supporters along the way, including West Side Congressman Danny Davis, who said that he trusted Johnson to, to build a team. So here's more of what Davis had to say when he endorsed Johnson for mayor.
1: Brandon Johnson has the talent, the skill, the ability
0: to group around him All of the experts that he
3: will need in every
0: area. So, Heather, what are your initial reactions to to the team that Johnson has appointed here?
3: Well they're going to have to work fast because Brandon Johnson takes office in 17 days. So there is literally no time to waste. And the transition subcommittees that he has put together are significantly more broad than that which we saw from Lori Lightfoot back four years ago. And I think that that is an indication that Brandon Johnson feels like he comes in with sort of a broader mandate. So we talked ad nauseum during the election about public safety and crime and violence, but there are a whole host of other issues that Johnson wants to tackle. And he did in the transition team, you know, it has sort of business people, it has government leaders. Um, It also has a significant number of union leaders Mm -hmm. and activists. And I think that um, it's really interesting that one of his uh, transition co-chairs is Barbara Ransby, the um, uh, professor at UIC who really has a deep, deep history of activism. Have we seen previous mayors include activists and organizers on the team? Yeah, not to this extent. Not to this extent.
2: also what one thing that is missing and I have to give it to Greg Hines from uh Cranes there are no business. Yeah, I disagree people. with
3: that because you've got Michael Fosnock of World Business Chicago, who is really tapped by Lori Lightfoot to lead her sort of liaison with the business community. I'll um, do respect to Greg Hines, but I think that the signal that that Michael Fosnock is sending there is that he's going to continue in mm. that role for Brandon Johnson. And I know that there were a number of business leaders who were relieved to see him on that transition team. I, I focused on the presence of Um, former chief of detectives Brendan Denehan and Robert Boyk on the transition team. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is an indication that um, Johnson is not looking to sort of wholesale overhauled the police department, but is willing to look to people who have deep experience in that department and Mm -hmm. listen to them in a way that I think many of them felt like Lori Lightfoot and former superintendent David Brown did not. But
2: Let's go back just really quickly, though, when we're talking about business, when you've seen other transition teams, you have got people who literally that is what they do. I'm not talking about someone who is appointed by the mayor to work with the business community.
3: Well you so. have Charles Smith, who's a co-chair and he has an investment firm. I mean he's certainly a business person. I think this it's a it's it's becoming this sort of narrative that because Brandon Johnson is not looking to sort of everybody who's had a hand in city government for the last decade and a half, he's somehow sort of shutting people out who yeah. were. Very easy to have their way into City Hall, and I don't think that's accurate. Here's
0: someone else that's on on my mind, State Representative Cam Buckner, Alex. I mean, he ran for mayor himself, as we know. He's now been named co-chair of the Transportation Subcommittee. Any surprises at all to hear that?
1: I don't think so. In fact, I I think that um, Representative Buckner's endorsement during that runoff was very meaningful. There were a lot of times when um, then-candidate Johnson was asked very specific questions about transportation or the, you know, the grid or make how to make trains, uh, you know, more punctual, very, very difficult questions. And when he didn't have very much time, Johnson sort of said, well, he, you should remember that I'm endorsed by mm-hmm. Cam Buckner, who really during the campaign carved out a kind of reputation for himself as a, a transportation whiz. We're going to be—that's a, a, an area where I'm going to be really eager to see what actual plans they come up yeah. with because— He has, like in a lot of other areas, made some very audacious claims saying that he wants to um, make uh, trains and and buses more reliable, that he wants to create real, dedicated bus lanes. But, of course, you know, as we remember from the the ill-fated Ashland Bus Rapid Transit experiment in 2015, things like that are going to be really politically difficult and unpopular. It means taking away parking for people, which, you know, businesses won't get rid of easily. I just want to quickly, to be fair to... Um, uh, Greg Hines, I think his his point was specifically no one from like the Chicago Chamber of Commerce, right? Specifically, you know, or an advocacy organization like that. There are a lot of people from the sort of business and philanthropy community, but I, I I have a feeling that Johnson will have no shortage of of people in his ear from and those it's not areas. Slamming. You know, it's yeah. not
2: it's not slamming the business community. It's not saying that you're not offering access to the business community. This doesn't have to be a negative. I think he has just come in with, number one, I think that there's more thought put into this transition team. It's not like he just came up with this this week. So when you have someone like a Brendan Denehan who quit weeks before, you know, it's time for the mayor to leave, et cetera, well, he was probably already thinking, this is what I'm about to do. And he's probably already advising when you look at Brandon Johnson, this is a very smart guy. Right. So he's not going to wait two weeks before and say, I'm going to throw these people together. This has been well planned out, well thought out.
0: Well, this transition we will. We'll hear lots more about them. So we, we can transition now to another topic uh, from new appointments to departures. Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, has announced she's not running for a third term. I will not be on next year's ballot. By my choice. And I leave now with my head held high, with my heart full, knowing
2: that better days are ahead.
0: She's faced a lot of criticism, Heather. Mm -hmm. Mayor Lightfoot accused her of not prosecuting cases. Some police officers said uh, they stopped making arrests because they were saying, you know, her office won't bring charges anyway. How valid were those critiques?
3: So I don't think that they were truly valid. And I think that you heard a very defiant and at times emotional Kim Fox sort of take that criticism head on. Um, You know, it gets lost in sort of the soup of pandemic memory. But she took office at a time when crime was surging. And then we saw crime dropping uh, for three years until the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And her point during that speech was, look, if I wasn't responsible for the Drop those first three years I was in office. I was not responsible for the surge. um, In the next three years, especially considering that there was a global pandemic, which which isn't to say that Kim Fox was not elected and did not um, implement significant changes to how the criminal justice system in Cook County works. Because she did. She stopped prosecuting uh, shoplifting cases when it was less than five hundred dollars. She made felony shoplifting charges only when there were you know you know goods of a thousand were taken or there were a number of other charges. Mm -hmm. She also spent a significant amount of time and political capital on overturning wrongful convictions and Cook County is the wrongful conviction capital of the world a um, ignominious uh, 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 statistic that we should all be ashamed of and she took that directly to the police department by saying these people spent in some cases decades in jail because of significant misconduct Mm. and there's no doubt that members of the police department, rightly or wrongly, saw that as deeply offensive to what they did. And let's be clear, she's a black woman who faced criticisms that she, that any anybody who was male or white would not have faced in that role. Kimberly,
0: early on, Fox said she was going to make the courts work for marginalized people and uh, that she would reform an embarrassing, she called it embarrassing criminal justice system. Do you think any of the changes that she made are going to stick around?
2: I don't know, (laughs) because you're talking about however hundred of years of state's attorneys here in Cook County. Yeah. And she's the first person to say, you know, you've got 65 percent of the people who come through this court who are being arrested and being convicted or put in jail are black and, you know, this doesn't make sense, yeah. considering what what this... And,
0: and before you continue, sure. let's add to the list of things, right? She she raised the bar on what we consider a felony for, for stolen goods. It went from 500 right. bucks to 1000 Um bringing us in line with all the other states around us, right? Yeah. Uh, she pushed for legalizations of marijuana, pushed for elimination of cash bail.
2: That's right, elimination of cash bail, and also to get rid of the records of those who were unfairly convicted of crimes for something that is now legal. So when you think about her legacy, no one else did anything like this. However, you're already seeing, even on the day that she gave the speech and said she was not going to run, she's going to be blamed for everything. And that is, everyone already knows why they are running when they run in this next. I'm I'm waiting to see who will be the candidate who will have that type of progressive Mm -hmm. and still reform because there's still more black people being arrested and convicted at still an amazingly high rate, which shows that there is still an issue with the system. Some names are already being thrown
0: around, are they not? I think I'm hearing uh, Inspector, uh, former Inspector General Joe Ferguson
1: can't remember who else. Richard Boykin, who oh, yeah. Um, yeah. former Cook County commissioner, who came very close to running for state's attorney back in 2020, but then after Dorothy Brown announced that she would not seek a sixth term as circuit court clerk, he switched over to that. I think it's a a very good probability that we are going to see him step up again, um, and it could be a pretty crowded race. But yeah, I think the question now is who is going to take up that mantle alongside, you know. Um, who would be supported by, say, Tony Preckwinkle, Brandon Johnson, or, or even Kim mm-hmm. Fox herself, to try to continue that legacy of continuing to try to turn around that aircraft carrier, of turning a prosecutor's office into an instrument for? Criminal justice reform—it's a really extraordinary challenge, especially when you're an easy scapegoat for right. mm. all of the violence that's that is happening. Yeah. Um, that's something that we really got to hear her, her go into and dig into a lot of her frustration in this speech. You mm-hmm. can tell that she was getting a lot off of her chest that she had been holding in yeah. for several years. Um, but it, it's important, I think, the context—even in the couple seconds before that clip that you played, where she announced. Or maybe it maybe was a few seconds after, she she mentioned the context of the new mayor of the city of Chicago, that I think really frames this as a kind of if not necessarily a victorious moment for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly far from a, a rebuke of everything that she's done. I think that if Vallis had won and there were a thousand newspaper editorials about how, um, you know, tough on crime was actually the way to go and voters were recognizing that, I think that it would have been a very, you know, more difficult decision for her to step down. Yeah. Or, or or you know, not run for reelection, that is. And uh, that it may be seen differently. But I think that she was able to take some solace in that result and say, no, we're really um, confidently and defiantly pushing forward with this agenda. And it's it's here to stay.
0: Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky took aim at Lori Lightfoot on Twitter. This was over the mayor's COVID vaccine mandate. Last week a judge ruled that city employees who were fired for refusing to comply with the vaccine mandate must be rehired and given back pay. And Senator Paul tweeted, quote, gotta love it when petty tyrants are given comeuppance. So this was quite the punch from the Senator who not only isn't from here, but also took aim at an outgoing mayor. What are your reactions?
3: Well, I think it 's a little bit unfair, and um what happened was is that the uh you know a complaint filed with the Illinois Labor Relations Board found that Lori Lightfoot did not properly bargain with several unions that represent city employees. So the board did not say that she did not have the power to impose a vaccine mandate. They said essentially that she did a poor job of it. And I think that there is probably something to be learned about sort of her legacy as Chicago mayor, Mm. that that's where we are right now. Um, But um, there's no doubt that it was sort of a blemish for the mayor. She 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 imposed this. She faced significant pushback and criticism. Um, But, you know, why it serves the political interests of a conservative senator from Kentucky to bash the outgoing mayor of Chicago, I think, is really interesting, especially since that we've seen uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, is weighing a bid for president in 2024, really take aim several times at Brandon Johnson directly, even though Governor J.B. Pritzker has blasted him by name. So yeah. Chicago is always a favorite punching bag for Republican politicians, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, you're, you might be right about that, Heather.
1: Alex. It seemed like kind of an opportunistic last swipe from Republicans who, for the last couple of years, really try had been trying to use vaccination mandates and mask mandates and things like that as a political issue. Um, nowadays, they, there's not much that of that opportunity anymore. And mm-hmm. so my only guess is that he, he saw this and said, oh, boy, there's finally there's <laughs> another opportunity. One last opportunity. What a zinger to get he, a he Well, vaccine th- mandates.
2: If you read Politico today, they have something called the Thirsty Awards. <laughs> he was not included on the list, but it was about elected officials in particular who make no bones about trying to find a way to get into th- the news. You know, OK, so he's late even with his his zing because uh, <laughs> uh, John Catanzar already talked about this when it actually came out and made a more valid uh, discussion about it. Because the if if they are successful with the, the labor board, these people will get back pay, which is a lot a lot of money that will be paid out of our do- tax dollars once again and um, have their jobs again. So, I mean, these these are larger real issues yeah. dealing with. Uh, The consequences of whatever happened during that time. And I also like to point out, initially, the mayor was leery to even close a bar during COVID-19, didn't close the schools. If you recall, the governor had to come in behind her twice to close those things. She said, we're not closing the bars Mm -hmm. for St. Patrick's Day. He said, yeah, they're closed. We're not closing the schools. He said, yeah, we're, they're, we're, they're all closed. So in in many cases, <laughs> whatever she did during this pandemic, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. Oh, interesting. The judge
0: ruled that uh, impacted city employees not only be reinstated, as I mentioned, but be given back pay with 7 percent annual interest. Big win for unions. Which ones were pushing for this overturning of the mandate?
3: So, this applies to um, ASME and um, a coalition of unions that include sort of IBEW and and sort of who bargain together uh, to collectively. Um, so, this isn't final yet. So, the city has a month from the decisions day to appeal. So, this is another issue that the mayor elect is going to find on his uh, desk in the leftover pile. And it will be very interesting to see whether Johnson sort of challenges this decision Mm -hmm. or if he seeks to come to some sort of settlement with these employees. And I I should point out that even though um, the police union president, you know, celebrated this decision, it does not specifically apply to the police department because they did not were not part of the group that filed this complaint. They have a second similar complaint pending to this. Um, But, you know, there were also no police officers who were terminated because of the vaccine mandate.
0: I want to switch gears now to to Springfield, folks. So there's about three weeks left in the Illinois General Assembly's spring session. Lawmakers have been busy with a whole slew of new bills this week, uh, several around education and literacy. So let's focus on those. Uh, Lawmakers want to revamp how reading is taught in schools, and they want those changes ASAP. Uh, We talked about this on the show yesterday. We, We learned only about one in four third graders are actually reading at grade level. In Illinois, one
2: in four. Any surprises? I thought it was lower. I, I'm I'm being honest. I thought I thought that the number was it was even one lower in three that. before yeah.
0: 2022, and then it, it became it dropped to one in four, which mm. I mean, not good. But it sounds like no surprises. No.
3: Well, I, you know, I think that the, the the you know we could do an entire show on standardized testing and sort of whether it properly measures actual academic proficiency or progress. And I think that a lot of these, we, during especially during the election, we mm-hmm. saw these scores attempted to be weaponized against sort of candidates who had the support of the Chicago Teachers Union and that it was somehow the fault of the Teachers Union that these test scores were were so low. Um, you know, I think that the, util- the ability of state officials to sort of look at these scores and then take appropriate action to sort of address whatever the actual problem is, I mm-hmm. think is significant limited. And, you know, on a personal note, one of my earliest political memories was being a Chicago public school student and hearing the then secretary of education declare that the Chicago public schools were the worst school district in America. Mm. And I just remembered, um, even as a tiny baby, being completely incensed by that sort of, yeah. you know, tar and brushing of an entire district, because we know test scores correlate directly with socioeconomic status. Absolutely. We know it correlates with resources and the ability to have a counselor in the school. And I just, I, I worry that when we focus on test scores, we sort of focus on a, just a very narrow sort of part of what's actually happening in our mm. schools.
0: Well, Alex, uh, the Illinois State Board of Education, it says there needs to be a serious overhaul of the way that reading instruction is done. Uh, several bills would require is to to create a literacy plan for school districts. If passed, that plan would have to be adopted by January 2024. So that means during the next school year, uh, it seems to to signal there is a real concern in Springfield and from the Board of Education just around the state of literacy in Illinois, to to Heather's point. Oh,
1: absolutely. I think that it's a really difficult conversation because, I mean, to to Kimberly's point, there are real failures there. This is something that really needs to be addressed when people said that you know, and is it oh, like now we're finally failing. taking it
0: seriously? Is that Well, what's right.
1: I mean, that's the other part of it is that, it, to, to Heather's point, how much utility is there really in naming what you're seeing as the failure or I think the real danger is branding something as a failure and saying it's it's irredeemable or, and just needs to be yeah. completely changed because then at that point it can become sort of pathologized or self-sustaining and then it can be harder to, to fix. I think that it's worth bringing into this conversation that um, – The Chicago Public Schools Board of Education has decided that they're going to phase out their um, school rating system, you know, level one, level two, level three, which really had crystallized and had a huge impact on these schools' abilities to attract parents, especially as school choice became such a bigger factor in who was going where. Um, And the Board of Education has, has been, basically came to this conclusion that what that was doing was just further entrenching and sort of dooming the schools that had already had poor reputations, and so I mean it's extremely difficult. It's another one of these seemingly intractable problems that is going to be yeah. landing on you know the legislature's desk, but def- definitely the incoming mayor's desk. Yeah. Um, especially as he is going to be presiding over a transition to an elected school board that he was one of the at the forefront of fighting for, but now he might see things get you know a little. Um, uh, messier in the administration of that school system.
0: uh, Yeah, and we'll talk more about that actually a little bit later, Alex. But before we move on from this topic of schools, I do want to touch on one more bill. Working its way through Springfield, it would require Native American history to be taught in Illinois schools. So we talked yesterday with Andrew Johnson. He's on the board of the uh, Chicago American Indian Community Collaborative. And uh, this is what he says he wants teachers to unlearn in this process of teaching Native American history.
2: We do have Native American Heritage Month, and it seems that that is the only time that our history is addressed, or even uh, where we
1: are seen as citizens here. So we would like to let people know that, my goodness, we're American Indians uh, 12 months out of the year.
0: Kimberly, do you remember what you were taught about this history in schools?
2: Well, not much. Wigwams, you know, things like that. I mean, you weren't it was not a, a real focus on it, except around Thanksgiving when you found out about the pilgrims and their how they learned about corn from Native Americans. So, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're still at a point that we have to figure out how to acknowledge the contributions of all people who have shown um, or who have built the country and mm-hmm. shown each all of us what 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 humanism looks like. And Um, to his
0: point, throughout the year, throughout the year, not not just just in the month,
2: because any, any one of the groups, African-Americans are still saying the same thing. Right. Latinos are still saying the same thing. It's last month was women's history month. That's when you realize, oh, there are women. (laughs) So, I mean, it's unfortunate that these are not just interwoven so that people can take for granted that everyone has had a hand in building this country.
1: Yeah. And especially, I think the, Part of it is embedding uh, Native American, American Indian history into our history, but also the atrocities and injustices that, that last to this day. Part of the bill would be to mandate teaching of uh, – in as part of the curriculum, I think it's a middle school or high school curriculum yeah. on the Holocaust and genocides. The teachers also have to talk about Native American genocide in North America that we're not – even when we are acknowledging um, the real – uh, uh, sort of bedrock and contributions of of Native American um, histories and and, and peoples in our history. It's not also just sort of uh, idealizing or infantilizing that sort of like mm-hmm. oh they brought corn or, or taught. It's very you know.
2: And you know what might even be, be done. Ex- what what might even be just as important is if we were to acknowledge how these groups exist in this space now absolutely, because yeah. this is an extremely vulnerable population mm-hmm. that has, if you ever look at anything on PBS, right. you, you find out just how vulnerable the women are in this community, how yes. children are, the level of alcoholism, and what are the conditions that w- would make this happen. Native Americans this... are
0: often taught about yes. talked about as a, a people of the past, right. yes. and that is so yes. unfair and not true. I have to take a sad turn, folks because this was a week of obituaries and and celebrity deaths. We'll start with the most recent, Jerry Springer, uh, the the famous former Cincinnati mayor turned talk show host. Uh, He filmed his show for more than 20 years right here in Chicago. He died in his home near Chicago yesterday at the age of 79 did any of you watch the Jerry
2: Springer show?
3: How could you not watch it? It permeated the culture in a way that just does not exist. Today. I watched it in
2: London. That's yeah. how much it has permeated <laughs> the culture.
0: Do you know what's weird for me is I remember the Jerry Springer show being part of my childhood, yeah. right? I was I was a teenager and I remember specifically this was in Toronto. I remember it came on at ten PM yeah. and then married with children at eleven. Like I, I always remember that lineup. And what was hilarious to me? was I got a text from my kids yesterday when the news broke in our little group chat and one of them says, oh my gosh, Jerry Springer, my childhood.
2: And I'm uh, thinking, uh, how is it my childhood and Jerry your childhood? Jerry babysat a lot of kids. He was on mm.
3: for 30 years. We're in two years. different generations. Yeah. 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 A lot of bad words to yeah. Yeah. a lot of kids. Um, yeah. About, yeah.
2: <laughs> completely <laughs> changed television.
0: Now, listeners and viewers, don't judge me on my parenting. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but
2: You too can be a success if you, Jerry ba- babysat you.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know, rest in peace, Jerry Springer. That, that show, it was pure. Chaos, but we know that it was also ratings gold. It was really polarizing here in, in Chicago. Chicago was also home to the Oprah show at the time, if you can remember that, which was, you know, a bigger feather in the cap of Chicago than, than Springer's tabloid talk show, which is a good thing. Right. And uh, Springer called, uh, uh, he was even called into a city council meeting and grilled by aldermen. What happened there, Heather? So this was 19- yes, I did not know.
3: Yes, this was 1999 and alderman Ed Bark, who will leave the city council in just a few weeks, was really at the height of his power as a force at City Hall. And he was chairman of the Finance Committee, which gave him the ability to call any sort of hearing that he felt so moved to. And this was really when, you know, sort of Springer was like, you know, really at the top of his sort of cultural power. And Ed Burke was incensed that this show essentially videotaped physical altercations that took place in Chicago across the world mm. and he was angry that that this was that these assaults essentially because you know I don't you know you would he would bring somebody out and they would unveil something and then they'd bring out a friend or a family member and then they would fight that was like literally the show and he wanted to know why the Chicago police weren't being called when one person attacked another person and if you remember when it was sort of at its worst Members of the studio audience would fight with mm. the the guests. Absolutely, like, it was amazing. I remember all of that. Yeah. it was it was wild. Yeah, so so Ed Burke, God bless him, hauled Jerry Springer into the city hall council chambers and said, you know, essentially he, he I, I the the video is fabulous. He he stood up and he had this giant like law book and said, if I took this book and hit you. Would you have me arrested for assault? And it was just this wild scene. Oh, my goodness. That, you know, where, and Jerry Springer said, you know, basically, go ahead. It would be ratings gold for me. <laughs> the more
2: I the more I learn
0: about yeah. Chicago politics as, as, you know, I'm, I'm entering my third year here. It is show on earth. It is just incredible. But he yeah. was
2: also single-handedly responsible for Channel 5 WMAQ losing their top-rated nightly news team of Ron Majors mm. and Carol Marine because because of his, his ratings. ratings they they wanted to bring him on with these witty little Jerry Springer end of the day thoughts and Ron Majors and Carol Marine noted <laughs> legendary yeah. news professionals said if you do that we're gone and and they did they left and he only did two of them it's wild my the, goodness
0: yeah let's turn to another story here the woman whose words doomed Emmett Till is now dead. Till was the 14-year-old black boy from Chicago whose lynching helped galvanize the civil rights movement. Till was accused of whistling at a white woman and news that the woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham, died at 88. That came out yesterday. Any reactions here?
3: So it's a really unsatisfying end to uh a sort of distinct chapter in American life and specifically Chicago political history. Um, you know, I, there was an attempt several years ago to hold this woman accountable for this this false accusation against Emmett Till that resulted in his, his lynching, as you said, and that nothing really came of that. And I think that at least the Till family um, held out some hope that she would be somehow held responsible and i think it's an indication that our society and our criminal justice system is yeah. t- still remains unable to hold people who weaponize whiteness and their privilege in in that way and um you know, it's just it's just one of those moments that is so fraught. And you know, there's even a significant amount of reporting that alleges that she was present when Till was was murdered. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there will be no justice for his family, I think, is none whatsoever. Yeah, it, it, it's painful, and I think that it's one of the reasons why his family is working to create um, a museum in the in his home in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I think that they hope that really the best that they can hope for now is to continue to tell the story and that, you know, in in a way that most deaths aren't, his death was not in vain.
0: Right. And and like we said, the the death of Emmett Till, it it, it electrified the civil rights movement. Speaking of the civil rights movement, uh, before we take a pause, I got to talk about another uh, person that we lost this week, actually a legend. Harry Belafonte, who's a, a civil rights leader in his own right, died at the age of 96. What part of his legacy sticks out to you? Kimberly?
2: Um, I think it's the quiet support that he offered to those who... So if you ever spoke with him, he would tell you he was not really an actor who was involved in civil rights. He really was a civil rights leader or a civil rights person who happened to be an actor or happened to be an entertainer. That came first before the Hollywood That's what he would have done. Right. That's what he would have done. So the quiet way in which he supported those who this actually was entirely their life. You come to find out that he was involved in You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife didn't make a lot of money because of their involvement and because Because being a minister. Well, he basically helped their families live. He offered money to get people out of jail. He made sure that they had money for food and those types of things. And it went well beyond what we call just the civil rights movement, what we know as the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. It goes into apartheid. It goes into, he had a definite stance on Cuba. He thought that we needed to get rid of, you know, all of the restraints that we had with our relationships with Cuba. It was really well-rounded and and forever so what he was 96 years old i mean there wasn't a time that he wasn't advocating for something to mm-hmm. try and make the world better to the degree of talking about even politics in the 21st century the, of the Obama administration or Condoleezza, how he felt about African-Americans who served under George W. Bush. He had very strong feelings when he thought that someone was not representing the little man or representing the needs of bl- the black community. So it's something I think that people should really take a look at. It goes beyond the Banana Boat song, even though that's what a lot of people know him for. Yes. Of course, those those things and, and Carmen Jones, you know, those, those types of things that mm-hmm. we see the uh, on the billboard of our our minds, but it's really quite interesting, the life that he led.
1: Right up until even just a couple of years ago, he was in um, uh, the movie Black Klansman, the Spike Lee movie, yes, where he had right. a very, you know, a short but very powerful cameo. Mm-hmm. As at that point, he was, what, 91 or 92 years old, yeah. really through the course of his life. An and very
2: accessible here in Chicago. Yeah, uh, Dr., uh, Reverend, um, excuse me, Father Michael Flager um, always has these talks during, for example, Black History Month, and he was a guest probably several times to come and just discuss his life and also discuss what he felt people should do today. Please be home to me Oh, island in the sun Healed to me by my father's hand. All my days I will sing in praise. Of your forest waters, your
1: shining sun.
0: Back now with more of the week's top stories. Heather, let's go back to the topic of schools for a minute, because you recently reported on budget cuts that are coming to nearly one-fifth of Chicago public schools. Fill us in on the details there.
3: That's right. So it is that time of year where the Chicago Public Schools has to start planning for the next next academic year, and nearly twenty percent of schools will either see cuts or not see budget increases in the twenty twenty four academic year. And this is going to be a much easier budget year than twenty twenty five will be because the district still has COVID nineteen federal relief funds to spend, and that will keep the budget really sort of at a flat line and that means that really sort of the big issue is going to be what happens next year and there are a couple of things that are going to happen. One, um, you're going to see a concerted push by Brandon Johnson and city officials to get state officials to increase the funding, state funding for Chicago schools. Right now, Chicago should get an additional $1.4 billion from the state for its schools that it doesn't get because the state has not met sort of its evidence-based funding formula, as Mm -hmm. they call it. So if they get that money, that will go a long way towards resolving sort of the school's budget crunch. The other issue is that under Rahm Emanuel and continued under Lori Lightfoot, the schools were funded based on how many students they had. So that really benefited big schools like Walter Payton College Prep and Mm -hmm. all of the selective enrollment schools. And it really hurt smaller neighborhood schools because it meant then that they could not offer the wide range of programs that parents like you and I Mm -hmm. want for their kids. And that meant that Parents had an incentive to send their kids to schools that were really already sort of succeeding. Now mm. Pedro Martinez, who I think hopes to keep his job under Brandon Johnson, has said that we want to the district wants to move away from that model. Which the question becomes: um, Well, yes, because the new mayor, who will have control over the school district, thinks it's essentially racist and ins- insufficient and ineffective. Yeah. But also, what replaces it? And nobody really knows. Yeah. What
0: sort of dynamics do you expect to see between? Johnson and CPS leaders
3: once he's in office next month. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. So he will get to replace all of the current board members, all of whom were appointed by Lori Lightfoot. Um, The question, I think, is, does he keep Pedro Martinez and does he keep that leadership team intact? And if he does... And, you know, what sort of changes is he looking to make before that sort of hybrid board takes place? So for there's going to be an interim board where part of it will be elected starting in 2025 mm-hmm. and part of it will be appointed. You know, sort of how does that all shake out? And is he willing to dip into the city's budget mm. to help the schools keep afloat? if the state doesn't come through. Mm. So there are a lot of moving pieces.
2: It's going to be interesting because um you know there is word that there will be some people that he keeps and I don't know about if it will be with CPS. When you look at His whole message, he fought against everything CPS was doing, absolutely everything. It's interesting, Pedro Martinez is saying this now. Now he wants a change in how schools are funded. Didn't hear that Mm. back when he was serving under Mayor Lightfoot, unless I missed it. But the one thing that I will say, we talk about public safety all the time. I think that the number one crisis may be education right now. When we see children um, running wild in the streets. Can they even read? I mean, I'm just I'm really asking this question when we're talking about one out of four can read with proficiency. And we want to keep tying it to the larger sense of how much money a school gets, which I think that there probably is a lot there. But also is at at some point, do you go in a school and just see what is there, what they have, Mm -hmm. what the children are being taught? Do they have teachers or do they have substitutes all year? I mean, these are things. It's really not rocket science. It seems like it's made into a larger issue when it's in a black neighborhood where children's schools are not getting any of the resources that they're supposed to have. So someone's going to have to fix this issue. And Brandon Johnson, he's the mayor elect. He ran on education. He's going to make sure every neighborhood school has what it's supposed to have. Now is the time that we're going to see what actually happens yeah. with this because people don't want to hear excuses anymore. Oh, for sure. Well,
0: we are winding down, folks. I got to turn to, if nothing else, I got to talk about this bird watch here. It's officially. Piping plover season in Chicago.
3: Plover pandemonium, I believe. <laughs> I tried to coin it on Twitter. Yes,
0: WTTW, it's one of your your top trending stories right now. The love triangle that's brewing at Montrose Beach. Uh, just I'll give a quick synopsis here. Uh, Imani, <laughs> Piping plover, Imani is a, a 2021 chick of the beloved lovebirds, as we remember, Monty and Rose. Um, now, Imani's back. He's joined by a hoped for. Female, but has competition in the form of a mystery bachelor. Have you been paying Jerry.
1: attention to this? Love Jerry.
0: triangle Jerry. just <laughs>
3: dropped.
0: They don't no. have. Have you been paying attention now? Only
1: a little bit. I mean, the two new chicks don't have names, right? Right. No. In fact, I do mystery have Thank and... you for asking us <laughs> um, They could call them Kappelman and Clay. No. In honor of the no. outgoing and incoming. <laughs> 46-word older people. (laughs) Three
3: people would get that joke, and I am
1: worth (laughs) Uh, it. It's worth it. They could call them um, Green Millie and Carol in honor of two of the oldest and most prestigious bars in Uptown.
3: Sure. Okay. Or
1: uh, in honor of um, Uptown's, you know, history of housing organizing— um, one North Side Nancy and the Plover North presented by Cedar Nancy. Street.
0: I can't. Oh my God. I mean, they've got quite the crowd of photographers mm-hmm. and bird watchers. They, they are celebrities. Yes, at this they point. are. Yeah. All right, we'll have to leave it there. I, I wish those birds the best of luck. Heather Sharon <laughs> of WTTW, Kimberly Agoin with WVON, and Alex Nitkin of the Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association. Thank you all. This episode of Reset was produced by Dan Tucker, Meha Ahmed and Linnea Dominic and Stephanie Kim. It was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmed. That's all for the news today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a lovely weekend.